0: Our dear Father, thank you for this beautiful, simple, marvelous book of Scripture, Father. How many people have read it over the centuries and been awed by the beauty of the love story, and yet here we are, Father, studying it once more and finding it so rich and so deep. We've seen eschatology in it, Father. We've seen pictures of Christ repeatedly. But don't let our hearts, Father, be distracted by some of these things. It's... It's obviously intentional, Father, that you've buried these pictures for our sake, and we see that. But at the heart of it all, Father, is Christ. And we want to make sure our focus as we study this is on him and on his work and on our relationship to him. And I do thank you, Father, for a church that puts your word first and gives me the opportunity to preach in this way, Father. To know that as I stand in the pulpit to open your word, I'm surrounded by those who want to hear it. That's a true blessing, Father. Thank you for this this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're finishing our study of Ruth. I've been doing the first story followed by the second story, as I call them. The first story being the main characters. The second story always being the prophetic picture. You've noticed that pattern. You may have counted with me and realized that this is the week I would normally have gone into the second story. But... Instead, we're going to go back to the first story again, continuing through chapter four, looking at the characters of Boaz and and Ruth and Naomi, watching him pursue rest for these ladies. So pick up there again with me and where we've been, what we've been doing. Last week, we studied Boaz's brilliant strategy to compel the kinsman redeemer in waiting to either commit or relinquish his role concerning these women. The unnamed man in the story stood between Boaz and Naomi's family. So that man was a closer relative, we're told, so he had to decline to redeem before Boaz would have been permitted to step into the gap. Boaz knew this, and he also knew it wasn't going to be easy to get this guy on record. This relative had good reasons to delay his decision, as we learned last week. But Boaz had a plan to get this guy to make a decision one way or the other, just as he promised Ruth, He did it, remember, by dangling the prospect of receiving Naomi's land, which got the guy's interest, as he expected. This man was allowed the first right of refusal for purchasing Naomi's land, the land that she had to sell to survive. And obtaining land in that day, friends, was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's easy to overlook how different life was then versus what we know today. Today you can run out and find land, if you can afford it, almost anywhere. Not so in this time. All the land of Israel had been divided up and assigned to tribes and to families. There was literally no land available in the day. And the law, as you heard in our reading this morning, set very complicated limits on how long land could be possessed outside the family should it have been purchased under some situation. And under most circumstances, land that was sold outside the family eventually reverted back to the original owner at the Jubilee. So the opportunity to acquire and to hold permanently any land at all that that was a deal too good to pass up in fact it seemed like a deal that was too good to be true in this case because it was a distress sale from a woman who had to let it go cheap and this guy was going to get to keep it because he assumed that naomi's family was on the verge of disappearing altogether remember you you have Elimelech gone you have his sons gone the only one left is naomi or so the man must have assumed and she's not going to have any more kids and she's not going to live forever So within a relatively short time, the land would be his, for there'd be no one else to inherit it. Again, too good to be true. And in fact, it was too good to be true, because as the guy found out last week, there was this other woman, this daughter-in-law, who also needed to be redeemed. And suddenly, the man's hopes faded as fast as his commitment did. He was willing to pay the price of redemption for the land, so long as it profited him. But now, there was this real personal cost involved. This threat to his own inheritance, as he said last week. And now, as we saw, he's no longer able to redeem, no longer able to pay such a steep price. And so he says, I cannot redeem the widow. I cannot redeem the land. And he spoke those words in front of ten witnesses. Remember? The ones, the elders of the city that were assembled by Boaz. These elders stood by silently, but their impact was pretty significant. It was felt their watchful eyes ensured that everything that was done was binding and all according to law And so now the matter is finished. That's where we pick up Now let's proceed forward verse 7 Now this was the custom in former times in israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter A man removed his sandal and gave it to another and this was the manner of attestation in israel so the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Maon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Aon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court. Of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. So, as Samuel, the author of this book, explains, there was a custom in this day, in the time of Judges, for how a matter of this kind was to be officially concluded. And remember, when we say the time of Judges, there are no kings at this point in Israel, and not even judges are on every street corner. So it fell to the leaders of a city or a town, generally speaking, to enforce the rule of law in their particular area. So in that day, as Samuel says, the people adopted a custom for how a man was to refuse his right as redeemer and to have land transferred under those circumstances. And the custom, he says, was for a man to remove a sandal that he was wearing at the time and give that sandal to the one who was actually going to redeem the land, to pay the price and own the land. That custom finds its origins in law, given to Israel. In Deuteronomy 25.8, we read this. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him, and if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, speaking of redeeming a woman, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall declare, This is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. So here's what the law required. The law required that the woman who wasn't being redeemed by this man who should redeem her is to go to the the elders and she was the one to pull off the man's sandals. Furthermore, as you heard, she spits in the man's face for refusing to redeem her. Spitting was a sign of disgust, of course. And then, in having a woman do all these things, particularly taking the sandal, etc., that's a particularly humiliating moment for a man in a patriarchal culture. And all of this is going on under law because the one who would not keep law be publicly shamed. The whole intent here is to publicly shame someone who's not living up to the expectations of the law for the sake of this woman. So, interestingly, the law did not compel the man to marry her in the sense that it forced that outcome it still expected him to do it willingly but if he wouldn't he was to be shamed publicly but notice the difference there is a difference between what i just read in deuteronomy and what we see happening here in ruth isn't there in this time the custom was practiced differently than the law expected This, again, is a time when people were doing what was right in their own eyes, the time of judges. Instead of a woman shaming the man, they had changed it. Now the tradition had become that the discredited Redeemer simply took off his own sandal, no one spitting in his face, no woman present, and just gave his sandal over to the new Redeemer. Now, by giving up just one sandal in the way that you see happening here, the discredited Redeemer would have been unable to walk properly as he left the meeting. I mean, he'd have to kind of walk a little strangely, like I am right now with my sprained ankle. His lopsided stride would have drawn attention to himself publicly as he leaves this meeting, and it communicated the shameful refusal to redeem. But you can tell they've muted the whole thing, haven't they? From what the law required, men came along later and said, you know, we don't like that spit-in-the-face thing very much, and, and I don't want to have this happen in front of women. How about we just do it this way? Just another indication of how the law was being set aside, at least to some degree. Moreover, the new redeemer, this man who held the sandal now, he possessed physical proof that he had gained the redemption right from the other man. I mean, this is effectively like a signed piece of paper. I have your shoe. It tells everybody what we just did. But giving up footwear to the new redeemer also created two very powerful symbolic messages. First, standing on land in that day was a way of expressing ownership over it. You can see this when you remember how God told Abraham to walk throughout the land that he was giving him in Canaan. Remember that walking on the land was a way of expressing, I own this. And therefore, when you remove a sandal, it means symbolically, it's a way of symbolically relinquishing the right to land, the right to walk on it, in other words. And in this case, that's exactly what's happened. The relative gave up his claim to Naomi's land, as he says in verse six. But the even more powerful symbol here is that taking possession of another person's sandal symbolizes walking in their footsteps. Boaz was taking the place of the other man in redeeming the land and in redeeming the woman. He's walking the path, so to speak, that the other relative should have walked, but was unable to do under law. Since the relative couldn't meet the terms of the law, he had to give up his footwear to Boaz, who was now prepared to keep the law in his place. And so it's as if Boaz stepped into the man's place, as if wearing his shoes, so to speak, and walked his walk for him. That's the symbology that's implicit here, as you give up a sandal. So that's the first step now. The man, the transaction has happened. Next, Boaz declares to the witnesses that he has rightfully assumed the place of this other relative. The elders in the crowd have all gathered there for this meeting. They're all watching this. They're observing it. And they are the witnesses so that if called upon in the future, they could truthfully testify to this matter, to what took place, and that it was settled according to the law. They could report that the closer relative was disqualified, from redeeming and failed to meet the law of redemption and they could say that boaz met all the qualifications to assume the redeemer's role he has performed the law in the place of the relative and they respond not only by agreeing with what he said but they go much beyond an affirmation they actually go to praising boaz here for his actions verse 11 all the people who were in the court and the elders said we are witnesses May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. There's a lot going on there, actually. Let's break it down. First, the people say, Yes, we are witnesses. But then they say, And I guess really they ask That the Lord would bless this woman That is Ruth To be like Rachel and Leah You remember the stories we studied years ago in Genesis About Rachel and Leah They were the wives of Jacob That he obtained when he was working for Laban Each of those wives though Were famous within Israel for the fact that they produced Not only a lot of children But so many sons Each of them produced sons Between the two of them Those sons eventually give rise to the tribes of Israel As you know And they ask, in this case, in like manner, that the Lord might bless Boaz with a host of male descendants, a host of sons, similar to the way those women blessed Jacob. Here's why they're asking that. Not just in some general sense that, hey, we hope you have a nice family. They're asking in a very specific sense. Remember, Boaz is obligated by the law, the law that he's fulfilling, to take the firstborn son out of this relationship, and designate this firstborn to be a son under law, not Boaz's son. So what if this son is the only one that Ruth gives Boaz in their entire marriage? What if he only has one son? Well then, if that were the case, Boaz would be left without an heir. That's the risk you take as the Redeemer. The risk you take is, if I only get one son, I'll have no sons. And so, the people asked the Lord, don't let that be Boaz's testimony for all that he's done for the sake of Ruth. Bless him like you blessed Leah and Rachel. Give him a lot of sons. And therefore, he would have his own. Furthermore, they asked the Lord that Boaz might possess great wealth for having placed his personal inheritance at risk. They talk about two places here, Ephrathah and Bethlehem. Ephrathah is just another name for Bethlehem, so they just say the same thing twice. It's a, a way of repeating for emphasis. But the reason they're asking for it is, remember the closer relative, when he was originally asked if he could take on the land, he says, oh yeah. Then they tell him, oh, you have to take on the wife also and raise the son up. And he goes, oh, wait a minute. That puts my inheritance at risk. We explained last week why that was. And just like the closer relative, Boaz is going to have to pay money to Naomi for this land. And that money will leave his wealth and go to her And he will not see that money come back when the son that is born becomes Naomi's son and gets the land as his inheritance. He's not going to pay Boaz back for the land. The land's just going to be his by birthright. So, in the same way that this other man was too concerned about losing his wealth to take the role of redeemer, Boaz has the same risk, only Boaz is willing to do it. And so they say, Lord, would you compensate Boaz? For his loss here. Would you bless him in return? Not a promise. Not a guarantee. Don't let some of the nonsense that's floating in the church today cloud your thinking. God does not promise that you'll get back what you spend. Sometimes he leaves you with less for good reason. They're just asking, would God do that? Would it be a blessing to Boaz in this way? Finally, they ask that Boaz's name would be made great for this sacrifice. They declare, may he be famous. The word famous in Hebrew is kara, Q-A-R-A, kara. It literally means to be called upon. May your name be called upon. May it be declared. So they're asking, may Boaz's name be declared in Bethlehem. And then the crowd says in verse 12, that Boaz's offspring for Ruth should be like Perez who came from Tamar and Judah. Now that's another story out of Genesis. Remember chapter 38, Judah has had a few sons. One married Tamar, the man died. Another married Tamar, that man died. And now he's got one son left, and he won't let the last son marry Tamar, which he should have done because she was a widow without sons. She deserved to have a husband. The brother was supposed to step into the place of the previous sons. But Judah said, -uh." nah, The sense he was saying to Tamar, you killed my first two sons, I'm not going to let you do it a third time. That wasn't literally what it says, but you wonder if that wasn't in the back of his mind, right? And as a result, Tamar's left as a widow, much like Ruth, with no prospect for marriage because the Redeemer in this case was being prevented from acting as Redeemer. So similar to what we see here, no one could step into the gap because the one who had the right wasn't going on the record to refuse it. He just wasn't doing anything. And Tamar, in her impatience, decided to go a step on her own. You, you remember she then posed as a prostitute on the road, on the roadside and entrapped Judah to come into her and produce a child, which was not the right way to go about it, but God used that sin to produce the offspring that was intended and to move the line of Messiah forward in the tribe of Judah. There are some interesting parallels between Ruth and Tamar, some of which I just mentioned, of course. They were both Gentile women. Tamar was a Gentile. Both, we said already, are widows without children. Both were due to be redeemed but couldn't be. Both married considerably older husbands. Tamar ended up marrying Judah. Both had to resort to creative methods to obtain the offspring that they both rightfully deserved under law but weren't getting. Eventually, she bore a man named Perez through Judah. He inherited the seed line that leads to the Messiah. He's in the list of genealogies that lead us to Jesus. He also became the leading family within the tribe of Judah. And that's all in the minds, I think, of the crowd when they say, would you make the son of Boaz and Ruth, just like you made the son of Tamar and Judah? Make him someone in the line of Messiah. Make him someone great, a name, prosperity, a posterity, that will be a testimony to this marriage. That suggests that the crowd knew that Boaz carried the seed promise. There was one family line through whom God was sending the promise of bringing a seed from Adam all the way to Jesus. And whoever carried that seed promise was known by the Jewish people to be someone very special in God's plan. It appears as though the crowd understood the connection that Boaz was in the seed promise line. One of his sons was going to be the one who carried the seed promise forward. They didn't know which one it would be, but they're asking the Lord, may it be the first son, the one that comes from Ruth and Boaz and will go to Naomi. What we're learning here is very important. We're learning that the firstborn son of Boaz is destined to carry the seed promise, that is, the family line to Messiah, but he's going to legally be Naomi's son, and therefore he's going to inherit the wealth of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. So the seed promise comes through Boaz. It's going to remain with the firstborn no matter whose son he becomes legally. So in a sense, and this is where it gets interesting, Naomi will be the mother of a child that will have been said to have one father, but his actual father will be different. And ultimately, that son will lead to a savior for the nation. Then, as promised, Boaz takes Ruth, his wife, and soon, by the grace of God, they do bear a son. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor woman gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Naomi's dreams come true. She has come through a dark time, a time of hopelessness. She returned to her land broken, bitter. She called herself Mara. Yet the prospect of a redeemer gave her some hope. Now, today, her hope has been realized because she receives a son. After the child's birth, Naomi, we're told, becomes the child's nurse. The actual word in Hebrew means caretaker, not wet nurse. It's just simply the custodian of the child. She becomes the mother, in a sense. Now, you might ask at this point, why does Ruth give the child to Naomi? Well, remember, under the law, the Redeemer was responsible for for providing to her, to Naomi's family, this missing heir. Elimelech and his sons died, so the family needs a male heir. But Ruth, now that she's married into Boaz's family, she's no longer a part of Elimelech's family. She's now part of Boaz's family. So she cannot simply raise this son within that family and call it Naomi's son it has to move to the other family so that that family name continues so Naomi has to receive this child as her child meanwhile Ruth and Boaz go on with their life and have more children we presume so that makes Naomi the last living member of Elimelech's family so she has to be the one to raise the son as if it were Elimelech's son so when Boaz who is Naomi's redeemer brings a son into the world that son is the son of Elimelech the son of God the king Therefore, Naomi receives the son as if it is her son. So from human terms, who is the father of this boy? Boaz. In spiritual terms, according to the law of God, who is the father? God the king. Or Elimelech, as we would say. But as I said... This child is also the seed promise holder because the fact that he is legally transferred into a Limelech's family doesn't change what God is doing. God is still using this child to carry the seed promise. He may legally be part of Naomi's family, but he is still in the line of Messiah. That's what you see when he says he becomes the father of Jesse who becomes the father of David. The, The seed promise continues on through this child women of the town are now rejoicing with Naomi because they all know what it must feel like to be in her position. And so they declare that now may the name of the son be famous. This again is in Hebrew meaning, kara meaning declared, called upon. And they say this child will be a restorer of life and a sustainer in old age for Naomi. Because of Naomi, Ruth came to know her Jewish redeemer and husband. Without Naomi, Ruth never would have known Boaz. And now the tables are turned. Because of Ruth... Naomi now receives a redeemer or a deliverer that is in the Son. So there's a real symbiotic relationship here. Ruth is redeemed because of Naomi. Naomi's redeemed because of Ruth. Interestingly, the parents don't name the child. Parents always have that right and very rarely would you ever see someone let someone else name your child. In this case, a neighbor woman comes up with the name. It's Obed here. The name means servant. One who serves. And the neighbor gave the child this name because she recognized Naomi's care for the child. Naomi was caring for Ruth's child. She's a servant. But of course, you see a bigger parallel there as well, right? A child named the servant. In fact, at this point, I'm guessing you're seeing many parallels, as I've alluded to them, in what we've already read, right? Parallels between Christ and Boaz and even some other characters. And for that matter, if we go all the way back into last week where I was teaching the first part of this chapter, we've never gone back yet and actually unveiled the second story, so to speak, the underlying symbology of that part of the chapter. either. I kind of owe you the whole chapter now unveiled. So why don't we do that? We're going to go back through from the what we looked at last week, all the way through what we're doing this week, we're going to unpack the second story of chapter 4. But now, friends, the second story, as I call it, is not one of end times. We're not looking forward to future prophetic events now. This now is a story of history. Let's go back to last week, where we had Boaz in the gate with his closest relative at the beginning of the chapter. The easiest piece of this whole puzzle, of course, is Boaz himself. Right? Everybody in this room knows that he's a picture of Jesus Christ acting as our Redeemer. And and by that same token, we've said already, Ruth, the Gentile bride, is a picture of the church. In Ruth's case, she needed redemption from widowhood. But we, friends, we need redemption from something that's far more serious, far more devastating. As sinners we incurred a life-threatening debt before God. The Bible says that all people come into the world as sinners. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our sin nature causes us to live in ways that are contrary to God's law. Our contrary nature and the behavior problems that it produces, all of that collectively is called sin. And sin is a debt that we have before God. Because we have this debt before God, we need someone to pay this debt. And paying this debt, by the way, is not easy. The payment must be equal to the debt. You can't pay off half of it. And the debt we owe, according to Scripture, is a life, an eternal life. Romans 6.23 says that the wages, the payment of sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the problem, friends. We needed someone to bail us out, so to speak, From the debt, the sin debt, that we have before God. You could say it this way. We needed someone to redeem us. Because the word just means to pay a ransom, to pay off a debt. We needed someone to redeem us from the sentence of eternal death, which is due all who sin. And that's pretty much everybody in this room. Boaz, as you know, pictures Christ our Redeemer. Who was the one willing to pay that price for our sin debt before God on the cross? Like Boaz... He goes before the elders, that is to say, before the witnesses in the gate, entering into a legal transaction. How so? Well, he made a payment for our debt, which the Bible calls propitiation. 1 John 4.10, John writes, In this is love that, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So he was a legal payment made to offset a debt that we have before a holy and just God who is going to hold us accountable for our sin. By that payment, the Bible says, we were justified, another fancy word which just means to be acquitted of our guilt. Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Christ stepped into the gap. He's the Redeemer who stepped in to assume the role of Redeemer. And friends, he did it in place of a close relative who could not do it. Let's go through the whole setting again. Like Boaz, Christ assembled ten witnesses for this transaction. In Boaz's day, the the men here, the elders, they represented the authority of the people. They could testify concerning what was right and what was wrong. Notice, though, that the ten elders never forced anyone to do anything. Did you notice that? In fact, they stood by silently the entire time. They simply give witness to what ought to happen in that situation. So where do we find ten witnesses in the story of Christ? Ten witnesses concerning right and wrong. We find them in the law. Specifically, the Ten Commandments. That is to say, before Jesus could redeem us, He had to meet the terms of the law. And specifically, the scrutiny of the law, the Ten Commandments. Remember, the law doesn't compel anyone to do good. It's not capable of doing that. If law compelled us to do what's right, then none of us would speed You'd see the sign, you'd always do the right thing. If you've ever sped once, even one mile over the speed limit, you have proof then, in your own experience, that laws cannot compel righteousness. Their only power is to convict you when you don't keep them. That's their only power. So you have ten witnesses, so to speak, representing the law, silently standing there, making no attempt to force any outcome, simply testifying to what is to be, what ought to be, and now the only question is, will you live up to them? Will you meet the terms of them? In the case of Boaz, Boaz could do what the closer relative could not do. There was that relative who could not meet the law, who could not stand up to the test, who could not satisfy its requirements. But Boaz, he could stand in the gap and he could satisfy those requirements. Boaz withstood the scrutiny of ten witnesses, having satisfied all that the law required concerning Naomi's family. And likewise, Jesus Christ has met all the requirements of the law by living a perfect, sinless life. The Ten Commandments and all the other law of God have been met in his life As John says in 1 John 3, 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So like Boaz, Christ is a man who fulfilled the law. But what about that other man? What about that closer relative who could not fulfill the law's requirements? Remember, he's a close relative of Boaz. In fact, he's a blood relative of Boaz. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't pay the price. He was under the scrutiny of the ten elders, and under their scrutiny, he was forced to hand his shoe to Boaz. And then Boaz could walk in his place doing what that man could not do. And I said last week that the close relative offers a picture of something else, someone else. And it was interesting to think about who that might be. I didn't tell you because I was hoping you'd come up with it. I'm sure many of you have. Who is the close relative? Well, at the top of the chain, he pictures Adam. As the Bible says, Jesus is the second Adam, the one who came to do what the first one could not. But ultimately, friends, and I hope you see this, ultimately that closer relative is you and me. It's everyone who is descended from Adam with the same sin nature that Adam took on, with the same problem that Adam began, this problem that we cannot meet the scrutiny of the silent law that stands to convict us. Therefore, we cannot pay the price that our sin requires. We needed to hand our shoe to someone who could walk in our place. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus is truly a close relative. But he had that interesting parentage. He was supposed to be of Joseph, but his actual father is God the King, Jehovah God. And though Jesus was God, he took on flesh so that he could walk in our place, taking our punishment under the law for us, having paid our price. Paul says in Philippians 2, 5, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Boaz and his relative pictures Christ on the one side and mankind, all of us, on the other. But like that relative, we are more closely related to each other than we are to Christ. Remember we said that this other man was a closer relative of the person needing redemption. That's a way of signifying that you and I are more alike than we are with Christ. I can't redeem you because I can't pay your price for you. I'm still first in line for my own debt. And for anyone who goes to the grave, never having stepped out of the way and given their sandals, so to speak, by faith to Jesus Christ, they go as their own redeemer. Which is to say they go to hell. Literally. Because the price is a perfect life. You don't have it. Empty your pockets. You don't have the perfect life that costs for sin. You literally have to say, I can't afford it. Only Christ has the payment. So as Boaz paid that debt... For the man who couldn't pay. The shame that rightfully belonged to the man who could not pay his own debt. That shame, in our case, transfers. Because Christ doesn't just pay a check. Remember, our debt is not paid with a bank account. Our debt is paid with a life. So he had to actually step into the role taking the death we deserve. That means the shame that was ours for being unable to redeem ourself transferred to Him. Scripture says in Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. And then Hebrews adds, Hebrews twelve two, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Lastly, we remember that Boaz redeemed not only Ruth, but he also redeemed Naomi's land. Remember, that was part of the deal. That also happened with Christ. The Scripture says that as Christ died on the cross, He wasn't just redeeming the souls of those who put their trust in Him. He was also redeeming all creation. Colossians 1.19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross through Him. I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, He redeemed literally all creation. Next, in this picture we're pursuing, we see that once Boaz became redeemer, what happened to him? He received adoration. He inherited all that belonged to Elimelech, according to verse 9 in chapter 4. Now remember, we've said already that Elimelech means God is king. And his character in the story represents God the Father, right? Like it's reflected on your sheet. Well, Scripture says that God the Father was husband to Israel, just as Elimelech was husband of Naomi. And now you see Boaz receiving everything that was Elimelech's for this sacrifice. As he redeems Naomi, he also redeems all her land. He takes on possession of the inheritance of Elimelech. Here again is a picture of Christ, because Scripture says, in his death on the cross, in his payment for sin, Jesus inherits all of God's creation. Hebrews 1, 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways... In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So Christ has inherited all. By the way, that's where in Scripture we see how we will receive an inheritance, an eternal reward, in the kingdom. For it is Christ who shares his inheritance with the saints on a meritocracy, on the basis of who is worthy of what so those who are more faithful now receive more in the kingdom, etc., as we've talked in the past. What Christ is doling out is His inheritance that He received. He's sharing it with us. And Boaz's act of mercy led to many descendants, and a great name for Him in Bethlehem. But Jesus' work on the cross did the same, wouldn't you agree? He has many sons and daughters in faith as a result of His redemption. And the name of Jesus is synonymous with Bethlehem. And it's called upon there first at his birth. Philippians 2, nine. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and all those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So why did Boaz do all this? To give Ruth and Naomi rest. I mean, that was the basic purpose in the whole story. To give them Permanent security and peace, this Sabbath rest. For for Ruth, we know the rest came in the form of this marriage, just as our Sabbath rest is found in our faith in Jesus Christ. We are the bride who has found her groom. We're never going to work for our righteousness again. We rest in the work that Jesus did. That's why he is our Sabbath. But what about Naomi? Naomi still needed a redeemer. Ironically, Israel who Naomi pictures, is the one that brought us, the Gentile church, to our Redeemer. That is through the covenants, through the scriptures. Jesus himself was a Jew. So we are like Ruth, coming to know of our Redeemer through Naomi. But today, friends, Israel is still in widowhood. They're still a nation waiting for their Messiah. But in a day to come, Scripture says that nation, Israel, will receive the same child that they rejected so long ago. That same Israel who made possible our opportunity to know the Messiah will one day receive that very same Messiah. Just as Naomi led Ruth to Boaz, and one day Ruth turned around and put a child, a deliverer, in Naomi's lap. That's how it's going to work. Zechariah 12.9 says, speaking about the day in which Israel receives the very same child that they rejected earlier. Verse 9 of Zechariah 12. In that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Can you imagine Naomi might have been crying as that firstborn son was placed in her lap? Only in her case, of course, tears of joy. In the way Zechariah describes this future day of Israel's redemption, They'll come to a spirit-led recognition that the child that came to be the man they pierced was the very one they've been waiting for, the Redeemer that they've been looking forward to. So in that sense, they'll understand what's pictured here, that Naomi's receiving of a Redeemer through Ruth was the promise of redemption made possible through Boaz. Paul says in Romans 11.30, Just as you, speaking to the church, were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, Israel's, disobedience, so these, Israel, these also now, have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy, for God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. So God has orchestrated this relationship so that both Ruth and Naomi needed each other and needed Boaz the most. All right, now the story ends with a genealogy. Verse 18 through 22, the story ends with, Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Amenadad, and to Amenadad was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. People often wonder, why does this story end with a genealogy? Well, let me explain it. Samuel connects the descendant of Judah and Tamar, Perez, to King David. Now remember, we did the book of Judges right before we did this study. And that was intentional. Remember, this was written by Samuel, the same one who wrote 1 Samuel for the most part. It was written during the monarchy of Saul. But it was also at the time after David had been anointed and was waiting to assume the throne. So the book of Ruth is written in that period of history where Saul is still ruling, but everyone knows David should be. And there's a contention between the house of Saul and the house of David. Which dynasty is going to win out? And maybe more particularly, which dynasty should win out? And in the midst of that debate, Samuel writes this book. David, he says, not Saul, is in the line of Judah via Boaz and Ruth. That is in the line of kings. And the Messiah is going to come through David's line by way of Boaz and Ruth. And in that way, what Samuel is doing is making a spiritual argument for the house of David over the house of Saul. That David has to assume the monarchy and Saul has to fade away. That has to be the case in order for God's promise of the Messiah and the kingships of Judah to be fulfilled. Clearly, this is all in God's plan. That's the first and probably the most immediate reason for why the genealogy is there. But it's not the main reason. There's another reason we have this genealogy. One that testifies to God's grace. Perez, remember, was the son of Judah and Tamar. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law, and as I told you earlier, she tricked him into impregnating her through that scheme of acting as if she were a prostitute. Now, she had the right to be redeemed as a widow, but because of Judah's refusal to let her have his last son, she felt forced to take this step. A sinful step, yes, but one that felt forced because of another man's sin. Now, the product of that union, as we know, is Perez. And because of how that union took place, he's an illegitimate son. I mean, in technical language, we would say a bastard son. There is a law regarding such children in Israel. Deuteronomy 23.2. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So are what the law said. The law said that such a person like Perez could not enter the assembly, nor take, which means they could not take part in the religious life of Israel. They couldn't go into the temple. They couldn't sacrifice. They couldn't participate in the feasts. And that same prohibition had to be carried forward nine more generations within their life. That's the curse of the law for those who came into existence in this kind of illegitimate way. Now, I'm not saying the law was followed. I mean, for that matter, we've seen already from the time of Judges that they didn't follow anything they didn't care to follow. I'm saying that's what the law expected. And you can be sure that God did not lose track of those generations, even if the people stopped observing the law. Follow me? So we have to count out ten generations before someone in that line of Tamar and Judah can enter into the assembly rightfully according to God. What's interesting about Deuteronomy 23 is the very next verse after the one I just read about illegitimate sons. The very next verse is one I've already read in here early in this study. I'll read it again. The next verse. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter into the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Now the law placed the same restriction on a Moabite who joined to the people of Israel that person was also barred from participating in the assembly of Israel and their generations after them well we know Ruth was a Moabite so she would have fallen under the same restriction but as our story ends you find a list of exactly 10 names tracing from Perez to David 10 we remember is the number of testimony and the curse of Perez's line ends with David who is another picture of Christ, remember? All right, so think about this. We have Boaz. He is a man who pictures Christ on the cross, paying our price, taking the curse for us, right? Taking, in this case, the curse of the Moabite woman for us. And then you see David in the last one in the line. David is a picture of Christ risen and ruling as king as having come to remove the curse. That's how these two men are classically pictured in Scripture. Boaz is the suffering picture of Christ. David is the ruling picture of Christ. David is the one who sits on the throne, right? So, in other words, in Boaz, you see a picture of the first coming of Christ. And in David, you see a picture of Christ removing the curse, the second coming of Christ. I hope that study opens your eyes to the power of God The God we serve out of Scripture. That is to say, He has obviously authored history in much more than simply in a random way. These people lived a normal life from the point of view that they just went about their days. They didn't think about what was happening as if God was controlling it. They just lived. But in hindsight, as Samuel tells the story, it becomes self-evident that God orchestrated every little detail of their lives so that it becomes this play, like a drama, lived on the stage of everyday life, that tells a much bigger story. Now, I'm not suggesting you and I have that same kind of story embedded in our life. We're not picturing Christ in our own life in that way as they did. But that doesn't mean God doesn't have a story of some other kind that he's telling. And it certainly tells you that in the everyday struggles of life, you can look up and know God's in control. Nothing's random here, right? The trials, the difficulties, the health scares, the other things that we just think have to be a sign that God's taking a break in our life are actually signs that God is working in your life. The only question is, what are you doing with the material he's giving you? When you see the puzzle coming together, you recognize God is not just the author of history in some large sense. He's the author of history down to the minutia of everyday life. Because, frankly, you can't author the large stuff if you're not also authoring the small stuff that gets you to the large stuff. There are some unanswered questions I'm going to leave as unanswered. Hopefully that will give you something to go back and study on your own. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for giving us a chance to finish this study, to see a part of what you've embedded in it in the story of this this small family long ago. Thank you for showing us our story in it. Remind us, Father, that we could not pay our own price, but you did it for us. We handed you a sandal, so to speak, and you walk in our place. Thank you for that blessing. Let us communicate to others, perhaps somebody we know who doesn't understand the gospel. We'll see it more plainly if we take them through a book like this than if we were to take them into something else in the scriptures. Let let our knowledge of this book be useful to us, Father, in serving you in that way. And send us out from here, Father, renewed, replenished, refreshed, and committed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.